Welcome, everyone. I'm Aaron Maté here with Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, and we are joined by Jeffrey Sachs. He is director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, and served as chair of the Lancet COVID-19 Commission. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I want to get your take on the latest in uh, Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky has just called for preemptive strikes against Russia, although a spokesperson later clarified and said he meant preventive sanctions. Uh, Biden, meanwhile, talking about uh, the world not being in the situation of facing the prospect of Armageddon since the Cuban Missile Crisis, also claiming that Putin is not joking uh, when he talks about the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons. Uh, that's Biden saying that, although I haven't heard Putin say any of that specifically. Meanwhile, Biden also said that the U.S. is trying to figure out an off-ramp for Putin. My question to you is, what do you make of this charge rhetoric right now? And do you think the U.S. is actually seriously interested in seeking an off-ramp at this stage? Well, yeah, I take all of this very seriously because we have a, a, a war between two nuclear superpowers. So this is a, a terrible situation. This is a war between Russia and the United States. Uh, the U.S. Uh, does not have that many uh, people on the ground. We don't know who really is on the ground in Ukraine from the U.S., but a lot of weapons are finance, intelligence. This is uh, the U.S. is fighting this war, uh, and this is quite clear. And that means two sides, each that have arsenals of 1,600 or so active nuclear weapons in a war that is of tremendous significance for Russia uh, on its border. And so far where the United States is saying, we will continue to do whatever it takes to defeat Russia. Well, when you have superpowers talking in that way, you better damn take it uh, as a big threat and I have not appreciated the U.S. policies in this all along because I think I'm actually a little relieved in a weird way that Biden said this because I felt this all along. I felt that the U.S. policy was on a path of escalation and that they didn't have an off-ramp in their minds. By the way, there's an obvious off-ramp, and, and this is the whole point of this war, if you really know something about it from the beginning. And the off-ramp is that NATO says we're not going to enlarge to Ukraine, period. That was the off-ramp that would have prevented the war. That was the off-ramp that would have stopped this war in March when Russia and Ukraine, under the mediation of Turkey, exchanged documents and said publicly, as well as the Turkish mediators, we're close to an agreement. Many of us think that the US rushed in and said, oh, no, no, don't do that. You know, we don't know ever with our government what's really going on because they don't tell the truth. That just goes with the business of government the way that it's viewed in Washington. But my feeling is that there are a lot of signs that the US has been against a negotiated end to this war because my interpretation is that this issue of NATO enlargement is a deeply held objective of the United States going back to the early 1990s. It's as deeply rejected by Russia since that time. I've watched it on both sides. 
That's why we have a collision course that continues to escalate and why we should take damn seriously this nuclear threat. But why Biden should ask himself, okay, well, good. He's asking, what's the off ramp? I'll give him the suggestion. We should never have suggested NATO enlargement to Ukraine. And we should stop now because Putin was very clear at the end of 2021. Here are my red lines and the core of them. The core of the red lines was neutrality of Ukraine. And I called the White House then I said, that's good. That's actually right. That's not just a concession. That is right for all sides. The White House said, yeah, we don't we don't like that. We believe Ukraine has the right to uh, join NATO. I said, it's it's not a right because it impinges directly on Russia's core security perceptions. You better talk. No, no, we're not talking about that. Well, they better talk. That's that's my bottom line. They really had better talk about this issue. By the way, uh, you can't have Zelensky negotiating with Putin. This is a war between the U.S and Russia. And we need to have the president of the United States and the president of Russia talking with each other and avoiding Armageddon. That's, I think, the bottom line. And Zelensky, by the way, said he wouldn't even negotiate with Russia insofar as Putin is in power. So Zelensky's taking care of that problem already, I guess. <laughs> Look, you know, I, I've studied the Cuban Missile Crisis all my life, all my professional uh, adult life. I wrote a book about the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I've looked at this issue in great detail. We came close to nuclear Armageddon exactly 60 years ago this month, by the way. And during that period, one of the provocations was Castro saying, fire, fire, telling uh, Khrushchev, you know, make a preemptive strike, just what Zelensky's doing right now. You could kind of understand it, but you know what Khrushchev said when uh, Castro said, you know, you should make a preemptive strike? Khrushchev said, my God, this is this is supposedly our ally who would end the world. We better negotiate. We better speed up the negotiations because this is not stable. And when Zelensky says these things, I'm horrified. Uh, and yeah, they walked it back, but he he didn't say sanctions, by the way. He said preemptive strike, and, and Zaluzny has said similar things. And they, they talk recklessly, maybe understandably, given their circumstance. I don't think so. I don't like it. And I think it shows how unstable this is. And by the way, during this whole period of this proxy war, where this is really a confrontation between Russia and the United States, we have pretended that it's a confrontation only between Russia and Ukraine, first of all. And we've said constantly, whatever Ukraine says, this is, uh, you know, that's the right thing. And so we're kind of giving carte blanche to the most extravagant, dangerous, provocative statements. And uh, another example, okay, you know, we don't know for a hundred percent, but let, let, let me uh, do, do a little quiz. Russia is in control right now of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. It is being shelled. We hear that's very dangerous, which it is. You shouldn't shell nuclear power plants. Now, one side controls the plant. 
So who is actually shelling the plant? Well, our media say, oh, we don't know who's shelling the plant. And they can't put one and one together to say, well, if Russia's in control of the plant, maybe they're not shelling their own plant. Maybe it's Ukraine shelling the plant. Well, I can tell you, I speak to a lot of people. <laughs> it's almost surely Ukraine shelling the power plant. And we can't bring ourselves to express a simple truth. And that hurts because they continue to shell the power plant with impunity. And we should say, stop shelling the power plant. Yes, it would be good if, if uh, you had control of the power plant, we can say to them, but don't shell a nuclear power plant. But we can't even find those words. That's the problem, because we're kind of faking the whole thing as if this isn't a US-Russia thing. Then we say, okay, do it, go defeat Putin. That's great, that's what we want. Defeat the guy with 1,600 active nuclear warheads and several thousand more in reserve. Go ahead, go do it. As if this isn't our Armageddon that we're heading to. And that's really been a massive failure of this administration till now. One thing I've learned in, uh, I'm 67 years old, I've been through a lot of US wars, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Nicaragua, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, and more. It's the job of the President of the United States to put on the brakes, because this country is a war machine at the top. We don't see it. We don't know it exactly. Eisenhower told us about it with the military industrial complex. This country is a war machine. The main job of the President of the United States is to stop the war machine from making wars. And we are now in an escalation heading towards Armageddon, according to the President. That's not a spectator sport. That's his job to keep us away from Armageddon. And Professor Sachs, you said this is a war between the US and Russia. We've heard threat after threat or call after call for an end to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland to Joe Biden himself. Senator Ron Johnson, in questioning Nuland, appeared to actually call for the sabotage of the pipeline. But I'm, I'm literally talking about rolling back the, the, the pipeline. And I can loosely define that, but I mean taking action that will prevent it from ever becoming operational. And so, who do you think is responsible for the worst act of industrial sabotage in recent memory and maybe in, in long memory? And what would their motive be considering that the German economy was on the hook here? <laughs> you know, I've said I, I, I wasn't there, but uh, my guess is <laughs> just like I think Ukraine is shelling the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, I think the United States blew up Nord Stream. And they told us, you know, Biden said it in February said if Putin invades, Nord Stream is over. And then a reporter said, well, what do you mean, Mr. President? How are you going to do that? He said, we have, we have our ways. We have our ways. We, we will bring an end to it. What do, what, how, will you, how will you do that exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will uh, 
I promise you we'll be able to do it. Come on. Uh, who controls the airspace? Who monitors the airspace? Who has the means to do this? Who said we're going to do it? Who said afterwards, this is a tremendous opportunity, this new situation, a tremendous opportunity to permanently wean Europe from Russian gas? That would be Secretary of State Blinken. Who said, thank you, USA, tweeting a picture of the burst pipeline? That would be Radek Sikorsky, former foreign minister of Poland. I, and by the way, you know, I've, uh, <laughs> I've been in touch with reporters uh, in papers that say, we don't know, or even worse, who say Russia did this. And then I talked to very senior reporters and they say, Jeff, of course, it's, it's the US, what do you think? But it doesn't get into our news. My guess is, my guess is that we're going to hear from Europe's investigators in a week or so. Hmm. Very hard. We don't know. Trail went cold. Very hard to tell. We'll keep looking, but uh, we don't know. But uh, terrible blow, terrible blow. That would be consistent with the US doing it. And the fact that things went a bit quiet after this, rather than parliamentarians throughout Europe demanding our core infrastructure was blown up, tells me that they're told keep it quiet, keep it quiet. We don't really wanna know exactly what happened. So I can't prove this, but it sure does, to my mind, put all the suspicion on the US side. Warnings, motive, capability, subsequent behavior, strange statements. To my mind, it adds up. I don't think Russia would blow up its core infrastructure. That doesn't make sense. And anyone else that did it would, you know, with Poland or Denmark or anyone else, that would be NATO, that would be with the U.S. President Joe Biden has said, Professor Sachs, that there will be an investigation into what he has deemed an act of deliberate sabotage. He said he'll send divers down, which is interesting because he knows that divers can reach it. Um, but do, do you think that this investigation will be a whitewash like the kind we saw the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons carry out where inspectors were actually censored and even attacked by OPCW leadership around the Duma Syria uh, chemical weapon attack allegations in April 2018. And what do you what do you make specifically of that allegation? Um, my colleague here, Aaron Mate, has done as much to expose the cover up as anyone. So it's a real issue of interest here. Well, on uh, this, uh, you know, the pipeline, the U.S. can't be the one investigating if the U.S. is uh, the most likely culprit. I mean, they, they can, but we're not going to find uh, any credibility in, in what comes out of this. Uh, so I think the idea of uh, an independent and transparent investigation would, would be great, but I'm not holding my breath. Uh, so uh, the U.S. may say something. Again, I'm 67 years old. It took me a long time to grow up to know that almost everything we hear is not true. We are a security state. We have a secret state, which uh, runs uh, most of our foreign and military policy, of course, and we don't hear the real thing. So I'm not putting too much stock 
uh, in, uh, in what the U.S. comes up with. I'm a little more curious about what the Europeans say. It's their infrastructure, after all. Uh, it's their economy. It's their uh, gas pipeline. And you would think that they might be interested in actually knowing. But what's also true is that if they do find out or they do know, which I presume they do, uh, they're not speaking also because, you know, the U.S., they think is their security umbrella. I think the U.S. is the great provocation that threatens Europe uh, just about as much as anything right now. So I don't know if we'll ever find out the truth, but frankly, there are so many issues that we never find out the truth about because we never really look. And when you have a state based on secrecy and impunity and like in love story, never having to say you're sorry. The CIA doesn't say, oh, we made a mistake. So sorry. Let's have a careful review of what we've done. We're not going to find out about Syria. We're not going to find out about uh, this, not from the US at least. On, on Syria and the chemical weapons, I'm I listen to you guys. I'm not enough of an expert or inside to know. But what I do know as a very basic, very basic point, the US, of course, uh, really instigated the war in Syria in 2011. It was the plan, like a hundred times before, to overthrow Assad. President uh, Obama signed a a, a presidential finding to task the CIA to work with Saudi Arabia and others to overthrow Assad. This was Operation Timber Sycamore. What is amazing to me about the whole thing is that there's almost not been any coverage, review, explanation of this. We heard only this is a civil war. That's what we heard again and again. And then we hear even more extraordinarily, Putin intervened in Syria. Look what the Russians have done. Putin intervened years after the US took action to overthrow Russia's ally. But we can't get this story told. I think the New York Times covered Operation Sycamore one day, if I remember, something around 2016. Nothing beforehand, nothing after. And I, I knew a lot about this in those years at the time uh, because I, I knew what was happening through uh, diplomatic channels and so forth. It was like reality here, weirdness of our mainstream media here, and a narrative that was completely devoid of facts for years. And newspapers, that are, of course, absolutely counter-informative. Quick uh, question on Ukraine before we move on to other topics. What do you think guides the U.S. officials who are overseeing the current policy? I mean, we had someone like Lindsey Graham recently say that as long as the U.S. arms Ukraine, they will fight to the last person. Four months into this thing, I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we help Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person. Do you think that's the prevailing mentality right now? And why are they so determined to sacrifice Ukraine in this war against Russia? 
And if I could piggyback on that question, Professor Sachs, since you mentioned the, the Cuban Missile Crisis and your understanding of it, uh, throughout the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Kennedy brothers, John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, were pushing back against the Joint Chiefs. Then later in Vietnam, although LBJ was going along with the Joint Chiefs, he was listening to character figures like George Ball, Assistant Secretary of State, who was an opponent of the war. Uh, do you have any insight into the thinking of the Biden administration? And is there anyone there who is resisting this drive towards nuclear escalation? Yeah, I think that the uh, core motivation of the US goes back to the neocon approach to foreign policy, which basically uh, has been the approach of the United States for 30 years now. At the end of the Soviet Union, the neocons took power, they're still in power, and their view is the US is the unipolar power, it's the sole superpower, and we're going to keep it that way. And under US strategic doctrines right now, there are two threats. Uh, Russia is one and China is the other. And it's not an accident that we're in confrontations on two fronts right now. So when it comes to Russia, Zbig Brzezinski pretty much spelled this out in his uh, very interesting book, uh, uh, The Global Chessboard, uh, Grand Chessboard, A Global Chessboard, 1997, uh, where he said that uh, Ukraine is the geographical pivot of Eurasia. It's the key. Uh, if the United States is basically uh, in charge, uh, Russia ceases to be even a regional power, basically. It's uh, cut out from the Black Sea and the Eastern Mediterranean. Ukraine's a big prize if you're a neocon. Uh, if, you know, and a neocon is someone who views the world like the game of risk, that you want to get all your pieces on the board and you want to take uh, all of your opponent's pieces off the board. And Ukraine is really strategic from their point of view. And this has been spelled out by Robert Kagan, for example. He's, they've written about this quite openly. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, th that family is, has been part of this for the whole time because uh, Victoria Newland is the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs in the United States right now. She's been through this, through all these administrations. And so I think that this is the core, that we're going to expand NATO. They have the idea that the North Atlantic reaches to Georgia. Now, that's an interesting idea. That was uh, George Bush's uh, geographical insight in 2008. Extraordinarily cynical. But if you look at a map, what's the game plan? The game plan is control the Black Sea. It is Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, and Georgia all surrounding Russia, where their naval fleet is. So that's what Brzezinski was outlining back in 1997. Now, they thought they could kind of slip it in uh, without uh, you know, Russia being able to oppose it because they kept expanding NATO uh, step by step. First, the three, uh, Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic, by the way, against the promise, the clear, unequivocal promise to Gorbachev that NATO would not expand to the East. And like so many other things, the US government said, oh, we never said that. Well, they're liars. Of course they said it. And there's a full documentary record, easily accessible on the web to understand what was said. So long and the short of it is that's been the game plan for 30 years. And it's had its ups and downs. 
because there, Ukraine itself is internally divided between East and West. And so the presidents have gone back and forth pro-Russia, anti-Russia. And when a pro-Russian president, Viktor Yanukovych, came in in 2010, after Bush had invited Ukraine into NATO, over the opposition, by the way, of European leaders, but this is a US-led alliance, Yanukovych guided neutrality through the Ukrainian parliament. That stabilized things for a little while until Yanukovych was overthrown. Overthrown by whom? Well, according to the US narrative, oh, the masses on the streets. According to what I saw with my own eyes, we stirred a lot of the pot and paid for a lot of that overthrow. I don't know how much. Everything's a lie. Everything's hidden. But the Russians say that was a coup that the U.S. led. I can't tell you exactly the U.S. role, but we we heard Victoria Newland on the tape uh, describing the formation of the new government and uh, other choice words for our European allies. And uh, I know with my own eyes, by the way, about U.S. involvement uh, in, in that, not my involvement. I saw it. I was, oh, my God, that's pretty weird what's going down. And this is Russia's point, which is, OK, you broke it again now, because as soon as that, as Yanukovych went down, the new government said, we want NATO. And then the U.S. started pouring in the weapons, billions of dollars during the Trump years. Then Biden came and I thought, my God, maybe we'll get some sanity. Of course, he doubled down three times in 2021. At the highest levels, we said Ukraine will be a member of NATO in the NATO annual meeting, in a State Department strategic document with Ukraine, and in a Defense Department strategic document. So we doubled down. That's when I called the White House at the end of the year, please take the off ramp. But they don't want to take the off-ramp. Now we're close to Armageddon, we're told. There is an off-ramp. We better take the off-ramp. We better start talking rather than just escalating. Well, you, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, you are the chair of Lancet's COVID-19 Commission. And recently in Spain, you commented that you believed that, the, that COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 originated due to blunders of U.S. biotech. I wonder if you could expand on that and discuss the role of the EcoHealth Alliance, which was a channel for USAID and Pentagon DARPA funding to the Wuhan Institutes of Virology, which remains a key culprit in the origins of COVID. Yep. Basically, the virus SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 disease is a uh, sarbacovirus, a, a bat virus that is also called a SARS-like virus because it's uh, the same uh, subgenus as the virus that caused the SARS outbreak in 2003-2004. But there's a, a piece of the genome of this virus that makes it really infectious. And that is called the cleavage site that sits on the spike protein that we all learned about and that allows the spike protein to be cleaved or divided and thereby enter human cells much more easily. SARS does not have this kind of cleavage site. SARS-CoV-2 
is the only virus of this bat family, sarbacovirus family or SARS-like virus family that has a proteolytic cleavage site. And the specific cleavage site is called the furin cleavage site. And it's four amino acids that make this thing so infectious that it became a, a global disaster with 18 million deaths. The operative question is, where did that come from, given that it is the only uh, furin cleavage site in this family or subgenus of viruses? Well, they didn't tell us at NIH, but we found out through leaks and lawsuits and all the rest, and by uh, because insiders knew about this, that one of the uh, projects of NIH funding was to insert furin cleavage sites into SARS-like viruses. They thought that was a good idea to make construct viruses that would be more dangerous. Why? Not sure, but uh, one possible reason is for making vaccines against dangerous SARS-like viruses or uh, potential use uh, of this class of virus as a biowarfare. We don't know. We just don't know. But what we do know is that there was dangerous research underway. And we also know that when this virus first showed up in Wuhan and people said, whoa, what is this? And the virologists looked at this in the uh, NIH group, National Institutes of Health group out of Fauci's shop. They said, whoa, look at that furin cleavage site. What is that doing there? And how did that get there? And on February 1st, 2020, there was a secret call. It's not secret anymore because of Freedom of Information Act. But there was a call where a group of virologists said, whoa, 80-20, this came out of a lab. Another one said, I can't even think of how nature could have done this one. Another said 50-50. Now, four days later, NIH oversees a draft paper that says definitely natural. And I call that definitely weird. And people should go to the website of US Right to Know, which has done a terrific job in these lawsuits. And Emily Kopp, a fantastic investigative reporter, has laid out this remarkable week where inside they say natural, and a few days later, they I'm sorry, inside they say lab, and a few days later, they say natural. Not that they learned anything over those three days, but they decided to tell us a narrative. This is how government works. It creates stories. It doesn't search for the truth. It doesn't aim for the truth. It doesn't tell the truth. It creates stories. And for weird, understandable reasons that Noam Chomsky and others uh, have talked about for decades, the big media go along with these stories. But they're very dangerous because these are stories. This is not real investigation or, or reality. So let me say clearly, we don't know exactly where this virus came from, but whoa, there is a lot of weird stuff and a lot of bad behavior by NIH. And 
Very interestingly, the head of the Centers for Disease Control in 2020, Bob Redfield, said inside, hey, this really could have come out of a lab. And what did Fauci do? He cut him out of all the process. And so he played the bureaucratic heavy and out came a narrative and the head of CDC with a lot of expertise in this area was completely shut out because he said, you know, there's another side to this story. We need to look at it. So what the Lancet Commission concluded, because we don't have the lab notebooks, we don't have the lab records, but what we can see is there is a pathway by which this could have come out of the laboratory for sure. There's absolutely no, nothing even remotely close to definitive that it came out of the marketplace that's been much talked about. There's so many holes and flaws and gaps in that story that it, it, it's nothing close to being definitive and perhaps is just a place where sick people went and sneezed on, on cages. And because of what's called ascertainment bias, that's where they looked in the, in the beginning because they thought maybe they thought or they decided that maybe it came from the marketplace. But the point is we have two viable hypotheses and we need to know. And one of the reasons we don't know about the lab is that the US government Fauci shop has not told us the truth about what they were doing, what the risks are, what they thought, and uh, how this uh, group made these early decisions. And because we don't know, we also don't know what else is going on. What other research is still going on? What other dangerous stuff is going on? Probably, I don't know. I shouldn't say probably, I don't know. But what I do know is nobody knows uh, except the inside of the inside. And that is not a, that's not a safe situation for this world. Well, presumably Anthony Fauci knows. Um, we know uh, that after 9-11, his uh, National Institute for Allergic and Infectious Diseases, NIAD received billions from uh, or under the watch of none other than Dick Cheney to conduct what were seen as biodefense programs, but which you have just acknowledged could also be biowarfare programs. Um, yeah, and but either way, what is what is not evident to a lot of people is that Fauci's shop is the biodefense shop of the US government. It's, it's where the defense dollars go. And, you know, maybe they didn't make this virus, but they don't want us to know what's going on. And well, that's- let's, let's drill this down. Um, yep. Anthony Fauci in April, 2020, promoted a Nature Magazine article, which claimed that COVID originated from nature. And through FOIA requests, the public learned that Fauci was involved in at least corresponding and collaborating with the virologists who put together that article. Uh, he, he, he probably was involved in the creation of that article itself. And this was a Cheney-esque act. It was like Cheney trying to sell the Iraq war. So the question here is, uh, what, what role do you think not Fauci played not only in the cover-up, but possibly in the origins of COVID-19? And to what extent can he be held accountable? First of all, that article is an awful article. It's it's called The Proximal Origins of SARS-CoV-2. It appeared in Nature Medicine in 
uh, March uh, 2020. Uh, and when I read it the first time, I said, oh, okay, this is natural, you know, uh, they explain it. And when I went back after I, you know, began to get what was going on, because I didn't get it at the beginning, the most remarkable thing in that paper, it, it just makes your eyes <laughs> bulge. In the moment they say it couldn't have come out of a lab because after all, this is this new virus is unlike any previously reported virus is is the line in there. Then the footnote to that, which is footnote 20, is to a 2014 paper. What a joke. They're talking about an outbreak in 2020 and they say it couldn't have been from the lab and they cite a 2014 authority for that most crucial claim. And if this were in the least an honest paper, the scientists would have said, we don't know because we haven't seen the lab books. We don't know what the research was, but this is not an honest paper. It was a designed narrative. Now, what really happened we don't know, except that there was a lot of dangerous research funded by the US government, including NIAID. And they were quite gung ho on this gain of function work. And the technology to make a SARS-CoV-2 virus was pretty plain. And we have very clever uh, bioengineers in the United States that charted this out in a 2017 proposal to the Defense Department, page 10 says we have 180 previously, more than 180 previously unreported viral strains. And on page 11, it says we're going to look for proteolytic cleavage sites and where they don't exist, we're going to insert them. And you say, holy hell, you are. Thanks for telling us, except they didn't tell us that had to be leaked from inside the US government for us to know about that. So they charted out the handbook of how to make SARS-CoV-2. And then with the straight face, they just ignored that the whole time, even till now. These same scientists that reached the conclusion in March 2020 couldn't have come out from a lab. Now they're told, well, there were more than 180 previously unreported strands. That comes out, do they change their mind? Do they say, oh, we didn't know about that? No, they just carry on straight face. This is not science. This is a concocted narrative. What it means, I don't know, but it needs an investigation, which is what I've been calling for. And, and, and on that investigation, um, Sam Husseini, who's a friend of the Gray Zone, veteran researcher on US bioweapons, helped publicize and exposed the role of the US NGO EcoHealth Alliance as a channel for USAID funding for gain-of-function research. And we know that EcoHealth Alliance was helping to direct the research at the Wuhan Institutes of Virology. Um, Dazak, when you appointed him to chair the task force you ran for Lancet, was already on the World Health Organization Commission. He signed and organized the Lancet letter dismissing the lab origin as a conspiracy theory he obviously had a conflict of interest because of the funding of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, even though he ridiculously denied there was a conflict there. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the role of EcoHealth Alliance and how Peter Daszak wound up under your watch as the chair of the task force. Didn't this 
waste a lot of time and who who initially put him forward to chair the task force now, it, 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 it it's a very simple story uh in early 2020 i believed the natural uh hypothesis because that's what the scientists were saying and i didn't have any reason to question that and i didn't know about the research that was going on and then i was asked to chair the lancet commission and i thought well who's the guy that knows about zoonotic spillovers who knows about what's going on with the viruses so i asked Ashik. no one no one put him forward there was no ulterior thing there was just my naivete uh, in uh, that first six months. So I asked him to organize this thing. Then I learned he's not telling me the truth on many things. And it was my own eyes opening up and being briefed by a number of scientists and being guided. Jeff, look at this, understand this. This is how this works. This is the research that was underway. You know, I had a two year crash course in virology uh, that uh, was uh, quite wonderful with a lot of very generous scientists helping me to understand this. But what I did know, and I know a lot about government because I've worked with a lot of governments over the last 40 years, I knew that there was lying going on. And the more I looked into it, the more the lies. And so that's after at one point I said to Dasha, uh, show me your project documents. He said, I can't. I said, what do you mean you can't? You're you're on a commission that's a transparent commission to get to the bottom of this. You show them to me. I can't. My lawyers say I can't. Oh, your lawyers say you can't. Well, you can't be on the commission anymore. Okay, so that was the first step. Then the rest of the scientists all attacked me. Uh, you know, you're uh, attacking science and so forth. Then the next Freedom of Information Act lawsuit dropped the next piece. And then I found out the one that was attacking me the most for dismissing Dashik was a co-investigator with Dashik. So I saw I who, wasn't who was getting. That? Who was that? That's uh, Jerry Kirsch at Boston University uh, and uh, somebody I was friends with for a long time. But he went after me. And then I find out, you know, he's they're, they're all one way or another not letting on. And it's by the way, it's not a big group. It's a pretty small group, but it's the inside group. They have the inside track on NIH. It's a small group that uh, has uh, talked to each other since the beginning. It's a small group that was assembled to uh, write this stuff. And it was pretty unpleasant. Uh, and, uh, and I saw that, you know, this is not, this isn't about science. This is about transparency. This is about finding out what's really going on. NIH, you know, in the lawsuits releases redacted documents, meaning blanked out. And one of them is the 2020 review of its research on these viruses, and it's 290 blank pages. And then they want trust from us. Come on, if you want trust from us, show us the document, not blank pages. So this is why we need an independent investigation. Let me ask a related follow-up, taking this back to Ukraine as we wrap. Uh, we've seen these allegations or rumors of U.S. biological weapons labs. That speculation was fueled earlier this year when Victoria Nuland was asked about it by Marco Rubio, but didn't give a direct answer. Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities. 
which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. Do you think there's any merit to these rumors or allegations that the U.S. has been involved in a biological weapons program inside of Ukraine? Merit that we need to find out. We have a system of government which in principle, if you're in seventh grade civics, or at least when I was 50 years ago, or it was more than 50 years ago, we learned that there were congressional committees that would oversee the behavior of the executive branch. That's what we need right now. I don't know the answer to this, but I know we need oversight. And what I know for sure is we have not had transparency on these key issues. And sad to say, really since 1947 with the National Security Act and the creation of the CIA, our government, when it comes to issues like this, operates in secrecy. We say that we're a democracy, but the public doesn't know. We're not told. When I was young, long time ago, the New York Times actually used to do investigative reporting. You'd be surprised. Uh, they, they, uh, they didn't believe what Johnson was saying and Nixon was, was saying about, uh, about Vietnam, and they were right. And there was the Pentagon Papers, and there was Watergate. And when I grew up, it was normal that a reporter on the New York Times would actually look into something. Now it's like a different world. And so the impunity from the mass media is absolutely stunning. That's why, you know, what we're talking about and what you're doing is so important because we're not getting it from the sources that uh, are, quote, the, uh, the, the authoritative sources. What we're getting is the government line. Well, Next, Aaron, yeah. and I, Aaron and I grew up in the Judith Miller era, maybe. Yeah, there you go. It, it's incredible. It's the opposite. Yeah, I, I grew up in the Seymour Hersh era yes. where I love these reporters. And, you know, <laughs> and their idea was bust these government officials for lying to us. And they don't have that view right now. Well, now, now we're conspiracy theorists if we follow in Cy Hirsch's footsteps. Oh, I, I was attacked that way today, yet again, by colleagues, you know, colleagues. And it's just, they don't understand. Uh, I mean, many people probably really don't understand what this consistent, uh, narrative creation, lying, falsehoods, misdirection really is when it comes to all of these sensitive issues. And these issues are life and death issues for us. Well, it's remarkable that more people, more of your colleagues, it just seems remarkable to me that more of your colleagues don't speak out more. And they did seem to be more outspoken, at least within liberal circles during the Bush era when the Iraq war started to go bad. But now it seems that they've all adopted this mentality in favor of endless escalation. I don't know if you can speak to that. I don't know. You know, I'm not, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I, I vote Democratic, but uh, I, I don't feel that we're functional as a democracy. And, and uh, the last two Democratic presidents launched a lot of wars and engaged in a lot of secret operations, and I don't like it at all. And I think our foreign policy has basically been run by the neocons for 30 years. And uh, Victoria Newland seems to be in every administration. And so to my mind, 
I don't like this partisan game. Well, this is on our side. You know, Fauci's our guy. We can't attack him and so on. Come on, it's not, these are not partisan issues. These are issues about life and death that we need to know about. And uh, a lot of people still have a kind of partisan mentality that if the Democrats are in, don't attack. You know, you're, you're part of the team. But I don't feel that this is the right approach. Jeffrey Sachs, director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, yeah. president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, and served as chair of the Lancet COVID-19 Commission. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time and insight. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for what you guys are doing. Thanks a lot, Professor Sachs. 